He is risen. You know, as we uh, continue our celebration of the resurrection this morning, there's a number of ways we can go when it comes to Resurrection Sunday. We can focus on any number of themes. But, but as you've seen in the text today, we're at Matthew chapter 28. We, we are focused on the record of the resurrection, and then it concludes with the implications of the resurrection. What, why does it matter? That, that, that's our focus today. And given that that's the case, I'd like to set up our passage with a question. The question is this. Why do Christians believe that every human on the face of the planet actually need to hear about Jesus? Why why do we believe that? I mean, I hope we believe that. But but why why do we believe that? Why do we believe that every human needs to follow and believe in a person who lived over 2,000 years ago? Well, why do churches spend millions of dollars every year to send missionaries overseas? Why do we care if people belong to other religions and follow other moral practices as long as they're not hurting anybody else? Why don't we just keep our religious beliefs to ourselves? Why do we even care? Why? Well, as we see in the text this morning, it's because the resurrection of Jesus Christ revealed the universal scope of his mission and his authority and and the mission of the world, pardon me, let me back that up, the universal scope of his authority and the worldwide mission of the church. Two things. Yet before we press into his authority and the mission of the church, we're going to focus on the record of the resurrection itself. Because it paints a vivid contrast between the authenticity and accuracy of Jesus' teaching and the duplicity of the priesthood. As we see in the record, leading up to the end when Jesus is on the mountain with his disciples, we see two things going on. Everything that Jesus said would happen has happened. And no matter what the priesthood has heard Jesus proclaim they refuse to believe even though they have every reason to believe it. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 28 starting in verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there's a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and he sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Behold, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came upon him and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, now, now as we begin 
this morning, I want to highlight something in this account that it's easy and very easy to overlook in a day and age in which we live in. And, and that's a stunning fact that women are the first witnesses to the empty tomb and the resurrected Christ. Not a big deal for us. But see, in the first century, women were not treated as full citizens. They could have a citizenship, but they weren't treated as full citizens. Even worse, their testimony was not admissible in a court of law. So see, if Matthew and the other disciples were trying to just make things up, they never would have put women at the empty tomb. Because their very presence would have undermined the credibility of the resurrection from a first century standpoint. The average person in the first century would have said, what, a group of women? Come on, give me something that I can really believe. Unfortunately, that's the way it was back then. So why? Why did the gospel writers write it in this way even though they had every incentive to hide it from what we might say a believability viewpoint? Well, they wrote it this way because they were more committed to recording an accurate record of the resurrection than they were to fabricating a fictitious but culturally acceptable version of the resurrection. They're more committed to the truth. See, I want to highlight this just even as we begin because, because even though we're not really focusing on evidence for the resurrection, that could be a whole other sermon, the very record of these witnesses here in Matthew chapter 28 give us reason to believe it's true. So let's take a closer look at the record itself. The first thing that we see, first thing we see when the women come is that it is not a secretive event, right? The resurrection is not secret. It's not hidden. I mean, it occurred in the presence of the guards and it's punctuated by a massive earthquake. And and as we look at the text, what does it tell us about this earthquake? We can see it wasn't the natural result of a volcanic eruption. It's not the natural result of tectonic plates shifting below the earth's crusts, but it's the sudden arrival of a supernatural being. What does he do? He breaks the seal He rolls away the stone and he incapacitates the guards by the sheer power of his presence. Yet in all this, what is the angel doing? Is he he freeing a trapped and helpless Jesus from the confines of his tomb? No. No, no. He's clearing the path for the first witnesses to actually be able to see inside the tomb that Jesus is not there and that he's no longer dead because he's been raised. That's why he's there. Back notice, how, how does he respond to the women when they first arrive? Notice, do not fear. What did the guards do? They feared. They've like passed out. They're on the ground. Do not fear. Then he explains the significance of the moment. He's not here, for he's risen, just as he said. Now, now I'm sure in the moment, their minds are just reeling with, with trying to make sense of what's going on in front of them. But do you notice what the angel does? He reminds them of what Jesus already taught. 
He reminds them of what Jesus has already taught about his death and his resurrection even before he invites them to go inspect the empty tomb. Let's quickly touch on the three places where Jesus reveals this long before it ever happens. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We go to Matthew 17, 22-23. As they were gathering in Galilee... Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. We get to Matthew 20, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, that is his last journey up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. See, while this might seem like a very simple detail, I believe the angel is doing at least three things in this reminder, just as he said. Number one, he's helping them see that for all of their fear and all of their anguish, Jesus has actually been preparing them for this very moment. He's been preparing them. It wasn't a secret. Even if they didn't understand it, he was preparing them. Number two, the angels helping them grasp Jesus' promise of the resurrection so that they might rightly interpret the proof of the empty tomb. Because apart from the interpretive, you know, he is risen, just as he said, they could come to the empty tomb and have any number of ideas. The soldiers took him out. Something else happened. We don't know. Number three. He's preparing them for their next task. It's not that they just have to see and understand and believe. They actually have something they're supposed to do, right? They have to go tell the disciples because the disciples ain't there. But it gets even better. Jesus didn't just tell his disciples that he would be raised from the dead. He told them what to do when it happened. Everything the angel says in this section is a repetition of Jesus' words. Matthew 28, verse 31. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. This is the Passover night. Did they fall away? Yes, they did. For it's written, I'm going to strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up again, fourth time he's promised it, what are they supposed to do after he's raised? I will go up before you to Galilee. See, see, when the angel gives the women instructions about Galilee, just like the resurrection, he's not giving them new information. He's helping them grasp the truthfulness and the accuracy of Jesus' teaching. Yet as they run to tell the disciples in this mix of fear and joy, these women are witnesses to an even greater event, aren't they? Jesus appears to them on the road, not as a ghost, not as a spirit 
but in his resurrected glory. And he does it so that they might see him and touch him and be convinced. Be convinced that he's been raised from the dead. And again, all of this to a group of women. Before the disciples even have a clue. I think in this, this we see at least two things here. Number one, Matthew wants us to see very clearly that everything that takes place on Resurrection Sunday, everything that takes place is happening just as Jesus said. Nothing is outside of the bounds of what he's revealed. Jesus has been actively preparing his disciples for his death, burial, and resurrection. The only problem was is they didn't understand it as he shared it. Whether they didn't understand, they refused to understand, whatever it is, they didn't get it. But the second thing he wants to see is that Jesus provided these women with four increasing proofs of the resurrection so that they could stand in confidence before the delusioned and, and, and disappointed and frustrated and fearful disciples. Four things. Angel rolls away the tomb. They can see the empty tomb. Angel tells them about what's going on, reminding them of what Jesus said. Jesus appears to them. They actually see him, but not just see him, they touch him. Do you think that they're pretty amped by the time they get to the disciples? There's no more question. Like, there might have been questions. Like, I can see him on the road. They still have questions, but after they meet Jesus, no more questions. Well, there's probably still some. But at least they're more confident in going to the disciples to say, yeah, he's risen. Yeah, you know what's interesting is Matthew actually doesn't, doesn't go to the disciple scene now. He cuts the camera. They're on the road right after they meet Jesus. Camera change, angle, where are we at now? Now we're with the guards. He cycled back to the guards now. Because he wants us to see something about the priesthood. The very people that should be ready and waiting and preparing God's people for for Jesus' arrival. Let's pick it up in verse 11. While they were going, that is the women, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and, the count, and then taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. We'll pay him off too. So they took the money, they did as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now as we begin here, let's ask a question. I mean, if, if, you've, if you've been a Christian or been a part of the church for a long time, you've, you've heard these stories over and over and over again. Why do the guards report to the chief priests instead of to Pilate? You ever think about that? Like, like, why do they do that? Because normally the image we have in our mind is centurions standing outside the tomb, right? They got their armor dresses on. 
Well, I think the best answer is I don't think they're actually Roman soldiers. Let's look at Matthew 27, starting in verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was alive, Jesus, after three days, I will rise. Now, now just, just like, like let's, that's even worth stopping for. What did, the, what did the disciples not remember? Three days. What did the priests remember? He said he's going to be raised from the dead. Okay? Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. And tell them he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, this is important, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now notice here in Matthew, Pilate does not send a detachment of Roman guards. He tells the chief priests to do it themselves with their own guards. I mean, I think Pilate's done. Like, like I, mean, I mean, parents know this. Bosses know this. You're, you're at that point, like you've done enough things, and you're like, I'm done with it. It's your problem now. Like he's washed his hands. I did your dirty work. I crucified the guy that you hate. I've washed my hands. I'm done. I don't care what he said. I don't care what your petty problems are, what your power struggles. I don't care about your stinking religion. Guard it yourselves. And this is important because the guards who arrive in verse 11 and give a report about the earthquake and the angel and the empty tomb, especially if they are the guards of the temple, which is what I believe they are here in the text, what it means is that the chief priests have the most qualified and believable witnesses they could possibly receive in the guard. Whereas we have women who are looked down upon, we have these group of military men, soldiers, temple guards, the most believable witnesses. But how do the priests respond to the report? How does the priesthood respond? Do they believe the report that the men have provided? Do they go and examine it for themselves? We, we, we don't know. We don't know if they went to the tomb. I'm assuming some of them probably did. But whatever happened, it didn't cause them to believe. They don't believe. They have the best witnesses and they don't believe. And in this we see the utter depths of their duplicity and their disregard for Jesus. Do you remember what they told Jesus on the cross? Matthew 27, verse 41. And so some of the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they stood before the cross. Jesus is on the cross. They mocked him saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down. We'll believe him. Do something. We'll believe you. 
He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. We already know the chief priests remember his promise of resurrection. He's done that very thing, which is even greater than just coming down off the cross. Yet they don't believe. We could even use the words, he has been risen just as he said and put those in the guard's mouth. And they don't believe. Rather, what do they do? They concoct a cover story to explain away the evidence of the resurrection and they bribe the guards so that they can protect their positions of power and authority over the people of Israel. If we had been reading all the way through the book of Matthew, we'd see the countless ways that these men have fought against Jesus, have mocked Jesus, have told Jesus, prove yourself, prove yourself, we're not believing. And when Jesus does, they still refuse to believe. They have to concoct a cover story. But what they don't realize is it's already too late. It's too late. And that's because the resurrection entails two monumental implications. We brought them up at the very beginning. What does it do? It reveals, number one, the universal authority of Jesus and it reveals the worldwide mission of his church. The resurrection takes us somewhere. It launches the world in an entirely new direction. Let's pick it up in verse 16 and 17 to begin with before we get down to the commission itself. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, oh, we'll stop there. Now, now, what I want you to see here in this verse, they've obeyed, right? They've heard he's risen. Go to Galilee, just as he said. They're in Galilee. They meet him. And when they saw him, how do they respond? They worshiped him. That is, that is, they fell to the ground and worshiped him. But as they worshiped, what's going on on the inside? They're, they're still struggling with doubt. They see him and they believe and they're struggling. They're, they're still struggling to believe. Is this really real? Is it all true? They believe, but they're struggling with unbelief. And I know we don't like to have that category as Christians, do we? We believe, but we still struggle. It's like the father of the demon-possessed boy and Mark, I believe, help me believe. Help me with my unbelief. They're struggling. They're struggling to believe it's all true. And I want you to see this because these disciples are in many ways just like us. We need to see this before we get to the command. 
We believe and we worship and, and we struggle still throughout our life with various aspects of our faith. We can struggle with areas. And sometimes it can make us feel like we're lousy, worthless Christians. And, and sometimes we might never express it to somebody else. We can maybe wonder, am I a Christian at all if I'm still struggling with a couple of these things? I don't have it all wired. I don't have it all lined out. And if that's you today, look at how Jesus responds in the text. How does Jesus respond to their lingering doubt? I can tell you what he doesn't do. He he doesn't berate them for their forgetfulness. Come on, guys. How many times did I have to tell you that I was going to be raised from the dead? Really? Nope, doesn't do it. And at the same time, what does he not do? He doesn't chastise them for their lingering doubt. Come on, you've been with me for three and a half years. You've seen me do all these miracles. You've heard my teaching. And you've still got doubt. What's your problem? Doesn't do that. No. He takes these disciples who are still struggling and he reveals the monumental implication of his resurrection. And he calls them into his worldwide mission. That's what he does. Starting verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's circle back to the question we opened with. Now that we've we had time to look at the record, let's look at the implications. The question was, why do Christians believe that every human on the face of the planet needs to hear about Jesus Christ? Why? Well, well Jesus' declaration in verse 18 provides us with the first part of the answer. All authority, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus and Jesus alone. Not some, not part, not most, not but a little bit. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. To put it another way, Jesus has absolute authority over every created person or thing. The most exalted angel to the lowliest human being, Jesus has authority. From the most ferocious animal on the planet to the smallest amoeba, Jesus has all authority. From the largest black hole in the universe to the smallest, most insignificant subatomic particle, Jesus has all authority. From the farthest reaches of the universe, which we still have not discovered, with all of our space telescopes, to the planet Earth, Jesus has all authority. 
Nothing, nothing is outside the bounds of his authority. Which means no human being can carve out a spot for themselves in which they are isolated from Jesus and can be rulers of their own world. See, in this, what are we seeing? Jesus is not just another religious leader. He's the rightful king over everything that exists in the universe. And if this is true, which as Christians we believe it's true, if this is true, it means pursuing the fourfold path of Buddhism or submitting to the way of Allah or worshiping the countless gods of tribal religions or embracing the way of of atheism are both empty and dangerous pursuits. Not, Not merely empty, but dangerous. Because this resurrected and sovereign ruler has commanded his disciples to make disciples of all nations. That is individual people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He has authority over all things and he's commanded his followers to make disciples of all people. This is the worldwide mission of the church. Our mission is not first and foremost politics. It is not works inside of our city. Well, it certainly might involve those things. It is first and foremost about making disciples of all people. But let's ask the question then, what does it mean? It's one thing to affirm we have a mission. It's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to point at a verse, but what does it mean? Make disciples of all nations. Well, let's Grab the easy one. All nations. Pretty clear. Every man, woman, from every corner of the planet. That's what we're talking about. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Okay? So all nations, that's pretty clear. How about disciple? Like, like we don't use that word. Right? We don't, we don't use that word. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. So, so let, let's, kind of, let's kind of press into that. If we, if we grab our handy-dandy Greek dictionary, we look up the Greek word to make disciples, it means something like this. To bring a person into a student-teacher relationship. Dif- dictionary definitions are so great, they're so boring. right? To bring a person into a student-teacher relationship. Then kind of what goes along with it is that that student's going to fully accept what the teacher says is true and will he sub- willingly submit to their requirements. So, so it's more than just going to class. It's more than just showing up in algebra class as a high school student. More than showing up to your philosophy class in college. No, this is more than that. It's actually coming to a person for that teaching and then following it. Very much the rabbinical practices of Jesus' day. But the reality is, is becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ is a far greater and a far deeper commitment than merely binding yourself to a teacher and learning from them. Because Jesus is so much more than a teacher. 
who simply instructs people in a better way to live. He's a sovereign Lord who deserves. He deserves our worship. He deserves our obedience in all things. He is in a class by himself. There's only one, and it's Jesus. But this very affirmation leads us to the next step on understanding what does it mean to make disciples? How do individual people, that should be our question, right? How do individual people from every tribe, tongue, and nation become disciples of Jesus? What does it actually mean? And I'm asking that because sometimes in our churches today, there's not always an agreement over what the most simple thing means. Do they need to start going to church? Is that what it means to be a disciple of Christ? Make disciples of all people. Just make a bunch of churchgoers. Make sure that they're on Sunday. Do they, do they need to start reading their Bible? Is that what it means to be a disciple? Let's make sure we get a bunch of Bibles and get them translated, get them people's hands, and they're now disciples. I believe in Bible translation. Do we need to get people baptized and get them so they're starting to follow all the commands that are written in the Bible? Is that what we need? Is that how we make disciples? Grab some people. Let's get them wet. You disciple now. I don't think so. Though all of those things are actually part of one's discipleship. The first and most obvious step is that Jesus' disciples need to obey the most basic requirement of their discipleship to Jesus Christ. I'm actually starting to step back, folks. How do individual people become disciples of Jesus Christ, it happens when Jesus' disciples are obeying the most basic requirement of their discipleship, number one. That is you and I telling other people about their desperate need for God's free offer of forgiveness. That's where it begins. It begins with the message. In fact, we might even go far as to say that personal evangelism is the most basic expression of Christian obedience. Yes, we are commanded to identify with Jesus Christ in our baptism. Yes, we are commanded to learn about everything he has called us to do and obey him. Yes, absolutely. But you know what? Jesus' command here in Matthew 28 makes it pretty clear that we cannot substitute our obedience for all these other commands for our obedience to the fundamental command to make disciples. And I think that's sometimes kind of what is easy for us to do as Christians. Look at all the other things I'm doing good. And use it to try to counterbalance the things that we're not doing. But according to Matthew 28, it's the most fundamental task of our discipleship. See, when we're called to make disciples, we're called to make disciples of all nations which means not, not only our children, not only our family, not only our closest friends, not only people in our community. It means, it means not, trying to, not trying to carve off one arena at the expense of the others. 
make disciples. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 10. Starting in verse 14, pressing his Christian readers. How then will they call on, on him in whom they have not believed? How, how are they going to believe in whom they've never heard? How are they going to hear without somebody preaching? How are they going to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And, and I think most often the day and age we live in is the question, how are they going to believe unless they hear? So when we, when we ask the question, how, how do people who are not disciples become disciples of Jesus Christ, first of all, they actually got to hear the gospel. And more often than not, that's going to come through you. And it's going to come through me. As we share the gospel. And what is the good news? What is the good news of the gospel? Well, let's just grab the most well-known passage of scripture in our Bible, John 3, verse 16, if you've been to any football game, for God so loved the world, right? He gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life going on. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now that's an important qualification. Jesus didn't come and mess things up. That's what he's saying. Jesus didn't come and introduce a problem that, that needed to be solved. He came because the problem was already there. That's what it's saying. And we see that even more when we get to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever doesn't believed, believe is condemned al- already. Did you catch that? Already. Because he's not believed in the name of the one and only son. So, so, so the third verse, verse 18, is saying humans don't, don't, don't reach a threshold of, of sin that finally results in condemnation. We don't start out as, as these good people who mess up enough somehow through life that something happens and eventually we fall off the cliff. He's saying we start there. Every one of us begins our life in a state of sin and condemnation before God. So what's sin? You ever wonder what that is? You kind of hear that word thrown around in the marketplace, on the news, Christians. Like, like what's sin? Here's a nice simple definition. Did I get it up? I probably forgot to tell, tell them to put this in. This is my fault. Simple definition. Sin is any attitude, desire, or action. Three things. Attitude, desire, or action that explicitly breaks a command of Scripture that comes from a heart of unbelief or that it is not done for the glory of God. You're like, wow, Mark, that seems like it kind of involves a lot of things. That's the point. All you have to do is read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to see the fact that sin is not merely an act of, of behavior. It's not something that we're doing, an act that has to be performed. It's something that happens in the heart and in the mind. His whole point in there, it goes way deeper than anybody else ever thinks. So it's in any attitude, action, or desire that explicitly breaks a commandment of Scripture, comes from a heart of unbelief, or is not done for the glory of God. 
And when we grasp that that is actually the definition of sin, it helps us quickly see that every single one of us has committed countless sins in our lives. Well, like, like nobody's left out of that equation. But see, the good news in John 3, 16 through 18 is that God don't grade on a curve. God doesn't grade on a curve. See, see, we're, we're equally separated from God because of our sin. Despite the fact that, that we are not equally destructive and, con- and, and, and toxic in our sinning. That's normally where we get hung up, right? Do you see the impact that that person's sin has on all of the people around them? We look at the impact of it. Or the toxicity of it. And then we measure it to ours. We can't, we, can't, we can't measure like that. God doesn't allow us to. And you know why? Paul tells us why in Romans 3, starting in verse 10, as it's written, no one's righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For the one person who thinks they're making it, no, not one. Goes on a little farther, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The all means all, nobody's, nobody's on the outside of that. But going back to John 3.16, what do we see? God's not wicked, God's not malicious, God's not eager to punish mankind, is he? He's not. No, he, in his love, he provides a path to forgiveness and salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. It is for all who believe. So before we take one more step forward, let me just stop here for a second. Say, Christians. Christians, this is our task and our message as disciples of Jesus Christ. This should be our primary message that people hear around us. We, we don't believe that Jesus is just a better way than Muhammad or Buddha. We believe he's the only way. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's our message and our task. So now bringing it finally to the question, how do actually individual people become disciples? If, if they need to hear, Christians need to share, and if that is the content of the message, how are they supposed to respond to the hearing? Right? It's not just here, there needs to be a response to the hearing. I've broken into three simple things. Number one is, is, is actually probably where every you know, multi-step program begins, is to honestly recognize and admit that you've got a problem, right? <laughs> I mean, the only way to fix anything is to admit you've got a problem. It doesn't matter if you're hearing that clunk in your motor. You actually have to admit that it's there and go to the mechanic. We've got to admit. 
We can't solve it in our own power. We can't fix it. We cannot gain God's favor or his forgiveness on our own. We got, we got, to, we got to grasp that. We got to admit that. Anything else that we're hoping that's going to get us to God, we need to be able to set it down and say, okay, I'm realizing finally that that's not going to fix it. Simply put, we need to recognize and admit that our best attempts at religion, that our best attempts at righteous living can never make us right with God. We got to admit that. Second thing is to do what John tells us to do in John 3, is to believe. It is to believe God's promise to forgive and restore every person who receives his free offer of forgiveness. I mean, I mean, that's the only way we ever get there. The believing only comes because we recognize there ain't no other way. And that believing sounds maybe something like this. It's praying, God, I have nothing good in me. God, I, ha- I have nothing to bring to you of my own. I come before you in only one hope, and that is your free offer of forgiveness. You're your free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. God, forgive me and save me from my sin and make me your own. And that's what it means to believe. Not that merely Jesus was alive, but it means in believing his promise. Embracing it as your own in faith. This is how we're saved. But you notice I said there's three steps. The third one really comes as we're saved, after we're saved, after we believe, is humbly submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ in all things. All authority on heaven and earth belongs to him. It's making every effort in our life to learn and obey what he taught, fully believing that his commands are always right and they are always good and they are the means to the greatest joy and satisfaction in this life. That's what it means to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is our task as disciples of Christ until he comes. And the greatest thing is, is we have the promise. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is with us to the end of the age. And for all those who are in Christ and have come to faith in him, you will receive his promise of salvation and everlasting joy. If you're here and you haven't done it, man, I hope today is the day. Believe. If you're, if, you're not, if you're not understanding it yet, please talk to me, talk to Ryan, prayer team, some other folks at church. Ask some more. We'd love to share. Let's close in a word of prayer.